Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Episode 10, All That Victorian Jazz. Greetings and salutations to the 10th and final episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. I'm your guide on this gamble through gothic romance, Stella. Well, we're here at the last episode, and as always, there's not any continuity for this show. I've done radio plays. I've done kind of silent films, some sci-fi epics, some trash interpretations, erotica, vampiric horror stories, all of that. Hop on, hop off, wherever you so choose. But... I do suggest maybe starting with episode one if you've never read Jane Eyre to at least give you some context and then, again, find your joy, as Shagalicious says. So this series, potentially season, ends maybe as it was always meant to end, and that is with Jane Eyre, the Broadway Musical. For those of you that listen to me on other shows, you are probably aware that I love musicals, I love Broadway, I try to take a sojourn up to New York City at least once a year to see something and experience that culture. Sometimes it has a deep and profound impact on me, and sometimes it's just amazing and fun or a barrel of laughs. Unfortunately, I did not get to see Jane Eyre, the Broadway musical, live on the Great White Way. It opened December 10th, 2000, and it closed June 10th, 2001, with its first preview on November 9th, 2000. So it did not get to a year, unfortunately. It ran for 36 previews and 209 performances at the Brooks Atkinson Theater. Also shown at this theater as of October 2021, Six, which is an amazing musical that I've had the privilege of seeing. I highly recommend that. And more recent previous shows housed here include Waitress, Spring Awakening, Deaf West Broadway Revival, Rock of Ages, and as well as vintage revivals of Wait Until Dark on the Waterfront and the Glass Menagerie, just to name a few. 
The settings included in this show, England, Gateshead Hall, Lowood School, Thornfield Hall, and the surrounding Yorkshire Moors in the 1840s, as it should be shocking and surprising to no one. The majority of information that I'm about to read and speak about comes from the Internet Broadway Database, or IBDB.com, and if I am pulling from something else, I will reference that as well. This is the episode that might get flagged, ironically, not the erotica episode that I told countless, really everyone, not to listen to, but this one, because I will be playing many songs from the soundtrack, not all of them, but ones that I think back up some of the points that I make in my review, as well as I think just show better than me telling the experience of it or the feelings that are on display and the musicality of the show as well. So just be aware in part two, many Broadway songs. So if that is not your jam, then, you know, (laughs) skip it. But hey, I know now that when I tell people to skip part two, they don't do it. So there you go. I've, I've warned you and that's, that's all I can do. So some information about the production. The theater is owned and operated by the Nederlander Organization, produced by Annette Niepzow, Janet Robinson, Pamela Koslow, and Margaret McFeely-Golden, and produced in association with Jennifer Manocharian and Carolyn Kim McCarthy, and the associate producer, Allison Farquhar. So many females listed in the production staff there. The American premiere of Jane Eyre was produced by La Jolla Playhouse. Michael Grief was the artistic director and Terrence Dwyer was the managing director. The book is by John Caird and he also adapted Candide. Music by Paul Gordon. He had other literature adaptations including Emma in 2006, Sense and Sensibility in 2015, and Pride and Prejudice in 2018. So he certainly has a wheelhouse. Lyrics also by Paul Gordon. And additional lyrics by John Caird. It's, of course, based on the novel by Charlotte Bronte. The musical director, Stephen Tyler. Vocal and incidental music arrangements, Stephen Tyler, but not the Stephen Tyler. And music orchestrated by Larry Hochman or Hochman. The show is directed by John Caird and Scott Schwartz. Assistant director, Jane Patterson. Scenic design by John Napier. Costume design by Adrian Neofitu. Lighting design by Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower. And sound design by Mark Menard and Tom Clark. Production design by John Napier, Lisa Podger Kuskuna, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower. Associate scenic design, Keith Gonzalez. Assistant costume design, Devin Painter. Assistant lighting design, Bobby Harrell. General manager, Richards Kleiman Inc. Company manager, Diana L. Fairbanks. Assistant co manager, Jacob Hauser. Production stage manager, who they're. They do a lot, let me tell you. Lori M. Doyle, stage manager, Deborah A. Aquavella, and assistant stage manager, David Sugarman. It's conducted by Stephen Tyler, associate conductor, Dave Gursky, assistant conductor, Anthony Giralis, music contractor, Eugene Bianco, concertmaster, Regis Ian Diorio, violin, Rebecca J. Johnson, and Miniko Yajima, cello, Leo Grinhouts. Bass, Mark Vanderpool, flute, alto flute, piccolo, soprano recorder, Helen Campo. Way to go, Helen. (laughs) 
just realized the connection there with this subject matter. Clarinet, bass, clarinet, John J. Moses, oboe, English horn, Brian Green, French horn, Jerry W. Peel, trumpet, flugelhorn, ah, an instrument after my own heart, Thomas Hoyt, percussion, William Hayes, keyboard, David Gursky, Anthony Giralis, and Stephen Withers, synthesizer programmer, Music Arts Technologies, Inc. The computerized scenic effects by SMI, and finally, casting Johnson Liff Associates and Tara Rubin, marketing consultant Marjorie Singer, press representative the Publicity Office, advertising Spotco Inc., and photographer Joan Marcus. And you're probably wondering why did she read all those names? And the reason why I read all those names is I don't know those people. And for all we know, this could have been the only Broadway show that those people were on and also their artists that contributed to this piece of art. So I think that they deserved to be mentioned. And so that's why I went through all of their names. So now we're getting into the big stuff. So opening night cast. James Barber is Edward Fairfax Rochester. He played Beast in Beauty and the Beast. He then spent some time in Rikers, and uh, that is all I'll say about that. And he, after Rikers, went on to play the Phantom, which of course caused quite a kerfuffle as to why this man who did this thing that I won't speak of was brought on to play the Phantom in such a prestigious show and, and not somebody else. But he clearly plays a type with with Beast and the Phantom. And his tenor certainly reminds me of Anthony Warlow, who played Jekyll and Hyde in Jekyll and Hyde, the musical, but specifically the concept album, which I recommend over the original Broadway cast. But some of his songs, even Rochester's songs, has some of the power that both Jekyll and Hyde, some of their ballads has. Marla Schaffel played Jane Eyre. She was nominated for a 2001 Tony, lead actress in a musical, but lost to Christine Ebersole in 42nd Street. She was a swing and understudy for Fantine in the original Les Mis. She turned down Christine Daae, which I'm sure there is a story there. Of course, Christine Daae, if you are unaware, is the female lead in Phantom of the Opera. Uh, perhaps she turned it down for Jane Eyre, but I, I could not tell the timeline of that. And she was also a Vita for the national tour. So given just those, and, and I'm just pulling a couple things from her resume, but you can definitely tell that she has some acting and musical chops given those roles. Mary Stout played Marigold and Mrs. Fairfax. Nell Balaban played Grace Poole, Amy Eshton, and a schoolgirl. Andrea Bowen played Adele and another schoolgirl. Marge Burosa. Oh, okay. So I will say now that I'm going to use a slur, and just in this half, I won't say it in the second half, but just get ready. I'm going to say it, and it's because this is how it was credited, so I'm just going to read it as it was credited. Okay. So Margie Bubrosa played the gypsy, and this is really a pseudonym for James Barber, so think Mary Sunshine in Chicago the Musical, if you've ever seen that. Stephen R. Buntrock played Mr. Ashton and 
Sinjin Rivers. Elizabeth DeGrazia played Blanche Ingram and a schoolgirl. Bruce Dow played Robert. Gina Farrell played Mrs. Reed and Lady Ingram. Bonnie Gleicher played a schoolgirl. Rita Glynn played a schoolgirl. Gina Lamparella played Louisa Eshton and a schoolgirl. Marguerite McIntyre played Miss Scatcherd. Bertha and Mrs. Dent. Lisa Musser played young Jane. Bill Nolte played Richard Mason. Jane Patterson played Helen Burns and Mary Ingram. Don Richard played Mr. Brocklehurst, Colonel Dent, and the vicar. And finally, Lee Zaret played young John Reed and young Lord Ingram. The Swings, which Again, I'm going to go through all these because they are crucial to a show going on. If you did not have swings, your show would not make it. You would not be able to do it because swings come through. They're a clutch every time, and they say the show every time. So it's it's a, it's an understudy, usually a smaller or ensemble role within the main cast of a production. And also an offstage performer who only goes on if someone in the ensemble is unable to do so. And sometimes they cover principal roles. Not often, but it does happen. I think it happened most recently. I shouldn't say most recently, but maybe most publicly most recently was for the actual Tony Awards in 2022 where the woman playing Jane Seymour came down with covid and her yeah the swing the swing or the understudy came on so just be aware that they are super important and again yeah deserve their names to be spoken so here we go sandy binion bradley dean and erica schroeder were understudies nell balaban which we already said so here's another example right nell balaban played Grace Poole, Amy Eshton, and a schoolgirl, but she is also an understudy for Blanche Ingram. Sandy Binion, understudy for Mrs. Fairfax, Mrs. Reed, Grace Poole, Bertha, Louisa Eshton. So this person had to know five different roles, so just be aware of that. And some of those, Mrs. Fairfax has two songs, Grace Poole doesn't have a song, but she's got more scenes. Bertha, kind of a throwaway role. Louisa, throwaway role. But just, you know, some of these are bigger roles and that you just knowing or having to know six different roles is crazy. Stephen R. Buntrock, understudy for Edward Fairfax Rochester. Bradley Dean, also understudy for Edward Fairfax Rochester and Mr. Brocklehurst and Robert. Bruce Dow, understudy for Mr. Brocklehurst and Richard Mason. Bonnie Gleicher, understudy for Adele, Young Jane, and Young John Reed. Oh, look, a little a little gender flip there. Though with young boys, it's you can't really tell anyways. Rita Glynn, understudy for Adele, Young Jane, and Young John Reed. Gina Lamparella, understudied for Jane Eyre, Helen Burns, and Blanche Ingram, Jane Patterson, understudied for Jane Eyre, Don Richard, understudied for Richard Mason, Erica Schroeder, understudied for Mrs. Reed, Helen Burns, Grace Poole, Louisa Eshton, and finally, Lee Zaret, understudied for Robert. And as you can see, yeah, we had several Rochesters, just in case, and we had several Jane Eyres, just in case. Okay, the song list... Act one, and I will say what it's called and who sang it. And again, a slur will pop out at one point. So we've got The Orphan, sung by Jane Eyre. Children of God, sung by Schoolgirls. 
Mr. Brocklehurst, Mrs. Reed, Miss Scatcherd, and the Ensemble. Forgiveness, sung by Helen Burns, Young Jane, and Jane Eyre. The Graveyard, sung by Jane Eyre, Young Jane, and Ensemble. Sweet Liberty, sung by Jane Eyre and Ensemble. Perfectly Nice, sung by Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, and Jane Eyre. As Good As You, sung by Edward Fairfax Rochester. Secret Soul, sung by Jane Eyre and Edward Fairfax Rochester. The Finer Things, sung by Blanche Ingram, which you can only imagine what that song's about. Hashtag entitlement. Oh How You Look in the Light, sung by Edward Fairfax Rochester, Blanche Ingram, and Ensemble. The Pledge, sung by Jane Eyre and Edward Fairfax Rochester. And Sirens, sung by Edward Fairfax Rochester, Jane Eyre, and Bertha. And I will say, which is common that not all songs that actually were in the show appear on the soundtrack and sometimes they also change like the soundtrack comes out earlier often they should be I think through previews but that doesn't sometimes previews might still be going on and then they release the soundtrack and the soundtrack often acts as publicity right you put this out and people who are unable to afford or travel-wise can't get to New York City, at least have the opportunity to experience this show by hearing it. But sometimes it's still in process and they're changing things. So like the concept album for Je- – I keep mentioning Jekyll and Hyde. Honestly, you all should listen to that concept album. It's two discs, but it is amazing. One of my favorite songs that I like to just sing off the cuff is Bring On The Men, which is just an amazing song and very funny. It's funny for me, It's but there are so many double entendres. And anyways, this is not the Jekyll and Hyde podcast, but that changed because that was in 94 and then they had the actual Broadway cast album in 97 and that had undergone some changes. So just an example that things happen. And I'll give you an example here in Act 2 when I get to it. So Act 2, Things Beyond This Earth, sung by the ensemble. Painting Her Portrait, sung by Jane Eyre. I think you can imagine what that scene is. In the Light, In the Light of the Virgin Morning, sung by Jane Eyre and Blanche Ingram. The Gypsy, sung by The Gypsy. I apologize, but I think that's it. That's it for this episode. The Proposal, sung by Jane Eyre and Edward Fairfax Rochester. And I should say about the previous song that they do that with Mary Sunshine. I can't even remember what her song is in Chicago, but they keep it all hush-hush so that, you know, if you are unaware that Edward is actually the Romani woman, then you can be surprised. Slip of a Girl, sung by Mrs. Fairfax, Jane Eyre, Robert, and Adele. The Wedding, sung by the Ensemble. Wild Boy, sung by Edward Fairfax, Rochester, Jane Eyre, Bertha, and Ensemble. Sirens, Reprise, sung by Jane Eyre and Edward Fairfax, Rochester. Farewell, Good Angel, sung by Edward Fairfax, Rochester. Forgiveness, Reprise, sung by Mrs. Ree, Jane Eyre, and Ensemble. The Voice Across the Moors, sung by St. John Rivers, Jane Eyre, and Edward Fairfax, Rochester. Poor Master. And on the soundtrack, this is actually called Poor Sister, and it's sung by Mason. And, of course, it's talking about Bertha and her death and all that. And I guess Mason came back. It's very bizarre. But they change it around, and Mrs. Fairfax and Jane Eyre are the ones to sing this. And in the second half 
I actually speak about the musicality of this and how it recalls actually the song sung by the Romani woman and that there is a connection I think making birth of the other with English people being the focus that we're talking about then clearly they would think that anyone else would be the other but I would like to also add that it makes sense that the musical recalls or that song recalls the Romani song because it is talking about Edward and he's the one who sung that. But it could have been it could have been anything. And I think it's it's a stronger connection between Bertha and the Romani potentially. And that's something that occurs throughout. So if if you are a fan of, I, you know, the Phantom, I think is something that comes to mind easily just that there are repeated refrains or musical themes that pop up that you'll see move from one song to the next we'll see that not only in reprises because literally you're repeating something but you will also hear you know certain flourishes repeat depending on who is singing or what they're singing about or the context of that situation. I think you'll probably start to hear it with some of the songs that I will play in this episode. Uh, The final, the ultimate song is Brave Enough for Love, and that is sung by Jane Eyre, Edward Fairfax Rochester, and the ensemble. For the 2001 Tony Awards, it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Actress in a Musical, and Best Lighting Design. Marla Schaffel actually won a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Actress in a Musical in 2001. So here are some, if you are a fan of statistics and maybe some money, here are some stats courtesy of the Broadway League. So I'm not going to get into every week, but the highest capacity was opening week, which certainly makes sense with 93% capacity and attendance, I should say, with 93% filled with an attendance of 7623 and a gross of $375,181. And just to give you an idea, Brooks Atkinson Theater has 1,069 seats. So remember, we're looking at a whole week, not just one performance, and they're performing eight times a week. The attendance each week averaged between the 50s and 70s percent filled Closing week, it had filled 56% with 4,582 in attendance and a gross of 184,423. If I were to compare this to The Producers, which also opened in 2001 and won the Tony that year for Best Musical, its opening week, it had 60% filled its capacity. It made over 500,000, so close to $200,000 more. Its gross was $564,072, and the seats filled $8,237. The St. James does have a larger capacity by about uh, maybe 600 or so. It has a capacity of 1,710 seats. And then it's closing about, I mean, roughly the same, still significantly more than Jane over... $400,000 more dollars of gross. It grossed $519,213. It sat 7,694 butts in the seats and it was filled 56%. 
From Playbill.com, it was actually previously announced that May 20th would be the close date for the financially struggling show by composer, lyricist Paul Gordon and librettist director John Caird. So as you can see, they were struggling a bit. It seems like they're struggling, but it's all really relative to capacity, to how many seats they have, ticket prices... And how much the actual show is costing them. So just be aware of all that because I don't know where I would find that. But it'd be interesting to see how much money was going out each week for the producers versus how much money is going out for Jane Eyre. So anyways, they're going to close May 20th. But then songwriter Alanis Morissette, who happens to be a friend of Paul Gordon, is an ironic, infused the show with $150,000 to keep it running another week. So she basically, almost that gross was from her, right? But that would have been, she, all of that money would have gone into the actual production and then whatever, if there was if they were still in the red or they made anything from that final gross. So the reason to keep it running another week was because it would have been during the crucial Tony Award voting period. And producers were able to keep the show going even longer through the Tony Awards June 3rd. Although it received five nominations, including Best Score, Best Musical, Best Actress, the show went home empty-handed and producers announced the June 10th shuttering. Some brief history, and this is from the Wikipedia. A workshop of the musical was performed at Manhattan Theatre Club in 1995. The musical had a work-in-progress workshop production in Wichita, Kansas in autumn 95 at the Center Theatre. Minor roles in a large ensemble of schoolgirls for the scenes at Brocklehurst School were cast locally, while the directors brought several members of the principal cast from New York. The musical was well-received, and a recording of this rendition allowed the creative team and their backers to slowly move the project towards an opening on Broadway. The musical had its world premiere at the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, in late 96. The musical then had a pre-Broadway tryout at La Jolla Playhouse, San Diego, California, on July 14, 1999 to August 29, 1999. The cast had been reduced from 30 in Toronto to 19, and in my opinion, it's still too crowded. Years later, in 2018, it was announced a new version of the musical would have its world premiere at the Cleveland Playhouse. The new production would feature a 10-person cast instead of the original 21, which is good, I think, as well as new songs written by Gordon. Every actor in the ensemble, except Jane and Rochester, would play multiple roles throughout the course of the show. The production opened in late August to rave reviews. Cool Cleveland stated in their review, quote, Jane Eyre in its new form and format is a musical that shows that a small production in which care is taken with directing, casting, and technical aspects can make musical theater more captivating than big, splashy, overproduced shows, end quote. And that's just to give you a sense that I, I think some people believe that just something drops on Broadway pretty easily and right away, and that's the first step, and maybe question mark but I would say more often than not a lot of shows as they're being created are housed maybe off Broadway or really far away or other states or other theaters and they're given a trial run and seeing how that how that's going getting financial backers producers getting a theater which is hard because you know some of these shows have been going on for years for example you know Phantom of the 
Opera has been in the Majestic for years. And so that's just a theater that you're not going to get in. And it's it's tight. So it's it's a journey for, for many of these shows. And, and as you can see, Jane Eyre had a similar journey. And she continues to evolve, it seems, the musical since 2018. Okay, the synopsis is as follows. Act 1. Jane Eyre, a young orphan, is living at Gateshead but is ill-treated by her aunt, Mrs. Reed, and cousin John Reed. Jane is sent to a boarding school. Over the years, Jane becomes a teacher at the boarding school but longs to see other sights. She becomes a tutor of Adele Varens, a young French girl who lives at Thornfield Hall as the ward of the owner, Edward Rochester. When a fire breaks out, Jane puts it out and saves Edward's life and the two become close. Edward, however, cannot accept his affection for Jane and so invites wealthy guests as a distraction. It appears that Blanche Ingram and Edward may be getting married, but and Jane is unhappy over this. Mason, an old friend, arrives and Edward is disturbed. He asks Jane whether she would leave if he had a terrible secret and she vows her faithfulness. Act 2 when Mason is attacked in the attic, he is helped by Jane and Edward and leaves. Edward, pretending to be a Romani woman, tells Blanche Ingram that he is not rich and she hastily departs Thornfield. Edward at last tells Jane that he loves her and proposes marriage, and Jane happily accepts. However, on the day of the wedding, Mason tells the secret. Edward is already married to Bertha, who is Mason's sister, and his mad wife lives in the attic of Thornfield. Jane, unwilling to live with Edward without being married, leaves. Bertha, meanwhile, sets fire to Thornfield, and dies in the flames. Jane, hungry and exhausted after wandering the moors, has returned to Gateshead Hall and discovers that her aged aunt is near death. Mrs. Reed has tried to steal her inheritance, but Jane forgives this last evil treatment. St. John Rivers, a clergyman, proposes marriage, and Jane almost accepts, but she hears Edward calling out to her. She returns to Thornfield to see that it has been destroyed. Jane and Edward, blind and crippled in the attempt to save his wife, are married. Edward's sight is partially restored as Jane shows him their newborn son. Some brief comparisons between the book and the musical. Of course, I'll get into this a bit more in my review, but according to Variety, quote, most of the novel's unforgettable gothic incidents are here. The orphan Jane's cruel treatment at the hands of her aunt and her spoiled sadistic cousin, further humiliation at the Lowood School where she is befriended by the angelic Helen Burns, who then departs, lickety-split, to join her immortal brethren. And of course, Jane... <laughs> Why? Why would you write it like that? And of course, Jane's great doomed romance with her employer, Edward Fairfax Rochester, dark of brow and gloomy of spirit, but sexy as hell, end quote. In the book, Jane's aunt left her nothing when she died. It was Jane's uncle, whom we never meet, that made her rich. In the book, Jane does not return to Gateshead Hall after leaving Edward, but is found by St. John Rivers, who then helps her get a teaching position. And the character of Miss Temple, the caring teacher at the Lowood Institution, was cut from the stage musical in between its productions in Toronto and La Jolla. A cute aside is that repeat viewers of this musical were called airheads. I've often wondered about people who see a show multiple times. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it, but I don't think that's once or twice. And I remember when Spring Awakening, the original was coming out, that there was this group of girls that would come to like a show every week or something to see Jonathan Groff and he like became friends with them. And I don't know where they're getting that money. I mean, I guess the last minute stuff, the rush tickets and getting on the cheap, but you can't really do that. And especially, I wouldn't be able to do it with the shows that I want to see more than once. So, there you go. I'm going to end this part with 
one review. Of course, if you are interested in reading more reviews, you can easily find them. This one is coming from the New York Times. It's titled An Arsonist in the Attic, A Feminist in the Making, written by Bruce Weber. It was published December 11th, 2000. So just after the premiere. And I should say with previews, you're seeing a whole show, but people, the production the staff, the director, all that, they have the opportunity to change things. So things are in flux. The show is not necessarily going to stop and someone come out and say, let's change this or rewrite this. It's going to keep going, but they would probably get notes afterwards. I also will say that I have been to a couple previews. Sometimes those are cheaper tickets and sometimes it's good to get in if you know that this show is going to be popular, get in earlier. I did see Spider-Man turn off the dark, and I think that was still in previews, and that did shut down while I was going on, but that show had so many issues because of all of the high-wire stuff that they were doing, so kind of makes sense, but I'm glad no one was hurt. So here we go. From the New York Times. In Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte unleashed a full and independent female spirit on the repressive Victorian landscape. Her heroine is plain-looking and honest, spiny and kind, pious and passionate. And she overcomes the poor orphanhood of her upbringing and the prevailing cruelties of a caste-bound society to achieve a home, a husband, a family, a fortune, and spiritual peace. In the end, she has it all as the Victorians might have perceived it, and the novel, published in 1847, has endured as a kind of feminist urtext. Richly analyzed sociologically and psychologically for its fierce assertion of womanliness. Among other things, Bertha, the novel's famously libidinous shadow character, has become perhaps literature's most famous symbol of closeted desire, the proverbial madwoman in the attic. The novel is also, of course, a magnificent melodrama, a florid gothic romance set in dank chambers, posh drawing rooms, and efflorescent gardens, a tale of love lost and regained, tragedy mourned and triumphed over, a godly sense of retribution and reward over all. With such an opulence of imagery and emotion to work with, so much history and psychodrama to forge in, it is no surprise that the novel has attracted adapters for the screen and stage. But even with the dignified, assured performance by Marla Schaffel in the title role, the gloomy and mundane musical version of Jane Eyre that opened yesterday on Broadway at the Brooks Atkinson Theater captures few of the richly available nuances. What stands out in this production is the sense of scene-by-scene problem-solving, a connect-the-dots approach to narrative that is particularly disappointing pointing given the pedigree of the show's creators. John Caird, who wrote the earnestly literate book and was co-directing of the show with Scott Schwartz and the set designer John Napier are, after all, largely responsible <laughs> for Les Miserables with Mr. Caird as co-director with Trevor Nunn, the most brilliantly successful melding ever of theatrical and literary sweep. But from the moment that Miss Schaffel emerges from darkness to open the show with a nod to Bronte's polite first person, my story begins, gentle audience, a long time ago. The storytelling is fitful and hurried, a pace that accommodates a soundtrack but rarely pauses long enough for an actual song. On stage, Miss Schaffel watches her childhood unfold with dispatch. Young Jane... Lisa Musser, is tormented by her mean-spirited aunt and vicious cousin. She's tormented by a vitriolic schoolmaster. Her one friend succumbs to illness. Eight years pass and Jane arrives at Thornfield Mansion to serve as a governess for the ward of the mysterious Edward Rochester. Thirty minutes into the show, Jane, walking in the Thornfield woods, and Rochester, Jane's barber, who has tumbled from his horse, have begun the eventful push-pull courtship that commandeers the rest of the evening. 
To be sure, Jane Eyre in gestation since 1995 has evolved into a very handsome if very dark production. Aided by Tony-worthy lighting by Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower, Mr. Napier has given the show a techno-sleek beauty, employing a series of both fixed and mobile screens onto which scenic slides are projected. The lights are mounted on a huge carousel that can also handle enormous hanging props like chandeliers and paintings and windows, swinging them into place in midair, Magritte-like. On stage, a turntable revolves, bringing with it a steady parade of period furniture and topiary. So despite the breakneck narrative pace, the physical energy in the production is largely provided by props and light. Remarkably, there's so little dancing, just one quickly aborted party minuet, that no choreographer gets a credit. The tableaus are often striking, part museum, part cyberspace, but the futuristic fizz in the atmosphere seems awfully distant from the Victorian tale unfolding within it, and the overall inventiveness is an entirely immune to dull ideas. In the Act 1 finale, Jane and Rochester in different rooms sing a bedtime duet, each confessing the anguish of their undeclared love. It is Bertha, Marguerite McIntyre, the still-secret wife with the unsubtle arsonist compulsion, who keeps them apart. But when she suddenly appears, spectrally lighted above and between them in the attic, the image is so predictable as to be sophomoric. Still, the design and lighting here are far from tepid, which is one word to apply to the score by Paul Gordon, whose work seems to be straight from the Broadway schmaltz kit of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Claude Michel Schoenberg. Mr. Gordon has written a lot of music for the show. Much of the dialogue is delivered in semi-recitative, but the songs are few. Instead, we are given an undertow of melodic snippets, mostly of the brief arpeggio variety, climbing and descending, stairs, resplendent with soapy minor key harmonics, vaguely familiar and repeating themselves with the band. At least their prettily orchestrated manipulations seem to work on the audience, and they are very well sung. The dark-haired Miss Shaffle, who is much prettier than Jane is supposed to be, handles a huge role with remarkable aplomb. She has a strong, warm voice that is a central component of her winning performance, which is always cognizant of the kindness and humility that supports a heroic carriage. In a supporting role, Mary Stout as Mrs. Fairfax, the deaf and distracted housekeeper at Thornfield, provides a welcome lightheartedness both as a character and as a war warbly, worrywart singer. And Elizabeth de Grazia as Blanche Ingram, the spoiled woman with her sights set on being mistress of Thornfield, renders her pay into Rochester's riches, the finer things, in a lovely soprano. Mr. Barber has a pleasing baritone, and he shows off both vocal power and vocal wit, but as the swaggery Rochester, whose anger masks his tormented soul, he seems like a visitor from another century. With the must and moppy hairdo of a rock singer, a softness of profile, and the slightly hunched posture of a teenage jock, he blusters with the kind of arrogance that is manufactured out of uncertainty, a manner reminiscent of a young John Travolta. It's a disconcerting performance that, among other things, defies a chemical connection with Miss Shaffle's Jane. That they privately lust for each other has to be taken on faith, and when they finally get together, the reunion sends off no sparks, just dispassionate relief. In part, this, too, seems to be a function of the show's perfunctory consideration of the lushness of the novel. The overall gallop through Bronte's significant plot has the teasing quality of a movie trailer. We barely see Bertha when she sneaks down from the attic to set Rochester's bed aflame. Mr. Gordon's most inventive song, The Gypsy, has a wicked ditty that accompanies Bronte's cleverest ruse. The fortune teller used by Rochester to turn off Blanche's affections is all too brief because the scene is a blip. You can see why speed is essential. The show runs three hours even with its accelerator to the floor. But it's a failing that the directors have used the Bronte story for mere stage directions.
The result is that a great adult fable has been attenuated to the thinness of a children's story. To balance it out, the talking Broadway reviewer wrote, quote, a successful dramatic interpretation of the ever-popular novel by Charlotte Bronte. Jane is also blessed with a luxuriant score, haunting and memorable music, and crisp, intelligent lyrics, which speak from the very heart of this tragic and romantic story. John Caird, who wrote the book, and Paul Gordon, who wrote the music and lyrics, have come up with a major contender come spring's award time. With Jane Eyre, Marla Schaffel joins that small group of great stars of the American Musical Theater, Angela Lansbury, Julie Andrews, and Bernadette Peters, who, ladylike to the core, can effortlessly carry a major musical on their delicate shoulders and enchant an audience with a smile, end quote. Per usual, reviewers have their opinions, right? And so you might not share those. And it also, I think, depends on tastes. So New York Times reviewer Bruce Weber doesn't like the repeated melodic snippets that come through. And I like them because I think it adds thematically. And I will say I keep saying that Barber is a tenor, but... There we go. So baritone would have been the correct phrase. So forgive me for that mistake. I think that is it where I just want to give the background of this show. So I am going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to actually talk about, review the show specific moments that sort of caught my eye and ear and play many songs but not all the songs maybe I should say several songs from the original Broadway cast album maybe you too will call yourself an airhead after this see you soon imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. A flood of memory washes over me. A lonely girl, betrayed and battered, contrives affection from a doll she cradles so, thinking it will be the only love she Spirit is in pieces. Her heart is broken at the seams. She craves one drop of kindness. But all she has are shattered dreams. She curses the injustice and begs to know the reason why she suffers in this prison. When all she wants to do is fly. Not a vow. 
Poverty secures her fate Condemned to be a woman Barely fit to educate She swallows her rebellion But there's a storm within her breast She tries to quell the downpour Yet cannot tame her soul's unrest And the lightning strikes inside her As she looks to the sky And she pledges to spread her wings Through a hurricane she'll fly Over mountains, over oceans How her restlessness stirs For she longs for her liberty When will liberty be? Welcome back. I'm happy to say I did find a way to watch this Broadway show, and I suppose it depends on what you think about bootlegs. I think that's a discussion we could have at another time, but I didn't want this final episode to be like the silent film episode where I couldn't find that. So I did reach out. I have I have some contacts and I was able to find the original Broadway cast, a recording of them on April 18th, 2001. So getting pretty close to their actual closing date. So in talking about this, I have comments. I went through it, and as I watched, I made notes, so very similar to that episode where I was reading that one book that I did not like. I shan't even talk about it. It's Mrs. Rochester's Ghost, and I made notes. I did the same here, so I will talk about things that popped up and similarities I saw potentially with other musicals and also you will have many musical breaks here. So if this is the episode to be flagged, it's because of all this music. So you can kind of consider this back half a long play. I'm not going to play the entire cast album, but just particular songs that I think merit being listened to and carry a broader theme within the show and then have something to do with what I'm actually commenting on. So I will say that this came out, obviously, 2001, as I've said, but around this time, you had Dracula, which came out in 2001, and that had Frank Wildhorn music. Jekyll and Hyde had come out in 1997, again, some Frank Wildhorn music, and then Wicked is going to come out in 2003. And I mention the first two, at least thematically, because it seems like we are in a time on Broadway where people are starting to adapt darker or more gothic subject matter and Wicked is interesting because I hear certain musical cues in Jane Eyre that pops up in Wicked as well and when we get to that I will actually talk about it but you can feel the similarities between some of these darker tales Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde Jekyll and Hyde in particular because Dracula I've only heard that music a couple times Jekyll and Hyde I have that original concept cast album which I highly recommend compared to the original Broadway cast album because they changed some things and 
I feel like the same people were in it, which was fine, but they ended up merging a couple characters and it just wasn't as good. But anyways, I just hear, I kind of, or feel the same tonal quality with the music that is in Jane Eyre and with Jekyll and Hyde. You, I feel like there are a lot of more minor keys going on, so you have that unsettled feeling. And then if there's hope or happiness, you, you kind of go up into the major and... Of course, you have powerful tenor lines, and yeah, so you'll you'll see some similarities. And again, if if you're looking for some stuff, Linda Etter, whoo, is a great actress. I have to say, on Jekyll and Hyde, so you definitely have to check that out. But we're talking about Jane Eyre. So first of all, as we begin, as it opens up, we have Jane Eyre, and she is our narrator. So they start off very strongly actually putting her, the adult Jane, at the forefront of it, and she'll continue. She speaks to us. She calls us dear audience. So I felt like that was strong right out the gate. Gateshead and Lowood actually bleed into one another to make a quick transition. They have the final confrontation with Jane and Mrs. Reed at Lowood when she's called a liar and she's put out on the stool. So at first I was very confused why Mrs. Reed was at Lowood school, but it's to have this transition just keep it moving so that one review which said that it is racing at you know 100 miles an hour towards the end this is something that I am going to bring up a lot because yes once this musical gets started they keep going and there are moments where the tempo is slowed down obviously for more intimate conversations or depending upon the songs but settings and plot is just racing through to get through this 600 page novel and put it on the stage and well I'll talk about that at the end it is a bit strange that they have an adult playing Helen so they have an actual child playing little Jane but then there's an adult with her and we do know of course that Helen is a bit older than Jane I've had that conversation before but to have an adult is interesting and they did double cast so the woman playing Helen is also playing Mary Ingram and you know as I'm listening to the song that she has which on the album when I was listening to the album out of context I was wondering what (laughs) who was this that was singing because I just couldn't tell in what period this person would be singing to Jane and so now it makes sense that it was an adult singing to to little Jane but there are some times in that particular song that it is unlikely a child could sing as she does so I think it works in terms of double casting as well as the content of the song Mustn't be revengeful. You have to be strong to offer good for evil. Return right for wrong. We must not hold a grudge, and we must learn to endure. Then, as God is your judge at least your heart will be pure forgive 
when it's hardest to bear You must do nothing at all Forgiveness is the simplest vow Forgiveness of all their crimes is your deliverance now Bless those souls who would curse your name When the last bell tolls You'll be free of blame You can continue to grieve But know the gospel is true You must forgive those who lie And bless them that curse you gives the theme of forgiveness and love as we know she should remember that person who said that she might be boring shame on them and her song ends with brave enough for love which actually carries forward so we're going to hear those musical themes start to repeat themselves as we continue through the actual musical there's no miss temple only scatchard and That's interesting, if only because Helen's the only point person that can give her love, which we're used to, but with no Miss Temple and only Satcher, you don't really have Jane as an adult Jane have an ally either. So when she's saying that she's leaving Lowood, Scatcher is the one to say, like, you've got no promise. Where are you going to go? You should probably stay here. It's seven o'clock in the morning. Skies, I look out through the graveyard. A silhouetted swallow flies, he flies to distant countries. I lose him just behind a cloud. I yearn to be that swallow and go where I am not allowed. Over mountains, over oceans, heaven. Take me away, for I long for my liberty, for sweet liberty I pray. 
It's nine o'clock in the morning. I teach what's been instilled in me. But is this all we're meant for? Condemned to mere tranquility. Well, women feel as men do. We must engage our minds and souls. Let us like our brothers. Let our worth define our roles. Breaking custom and convention. Let tradition give way. From my bed, with the urge to depart and to follow the dreams of my heart. It's twelve o'clock in the pitch black night. I can't contain my wanderlust. I seek a new adventure. I search the skies because I must. I hunger for new. as I mentioned, many minor keys. So they're definitely adding unease to the songs that are used. The Liberty song has a repeating flourish. And I have heard this in Jekyll and Hyde and Wicked. And Wicked is one that really popped up. And with these sorts of songs, and I was saying minor keys versus major keys, so the hope, a hopeful song would increase or go up the scale so da 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 you know it'd be unless it's really rapid and then it might be something's happening but with this it's got this sort of triplet pattern that is going down the scale and you know that something is happening or something sinister or just again that unease and it's very similar to no good deed from wicked descriptions are still given within the musical especially of important places or items. And now you would think that it's only going to be Jane Eyre doing this, but they actually have ensemble that comes on the stage, and I'll speak of them later. I have, I have notes on them. But they come on the stage and they sing some sort of song that lets us know maybe we've changed 
settings or maybe we're about to be introduced to someone important and we should be watching out because they foreshadow for us. So this Stormfield song foreshadows and it certainly feels with this cast, with how they're singing, like Sweeney Todd at the very beginning of Let Us Tell You About Sweeney Todd. So they made Mrs. Fairfax partially deaf, and she is the comic relief. And I think the reason or the motive of making her partially deaf is to make her comic relief. So the initial meeting between her and Jane is just a bunch of repeated lines because if you are around older people who have lost part of their hearing or just people in general who don't have the best hearing... You have to repeat yourself multiple times and and potentially get louder or they will say things that you didn't say because they misheard what you had said. I suppose it's okay that they made her the comic relief. I don't know necessarily that Jane Eyre the musical needs comic relief. Well, hold on. Let me step back there. I don't think Jane Eyre... The book needs comic relief. It it certainly doesn't have it. I've, you know, in my repeat readings, I've picked up on maybe some comedic moments. But maybe the directors, producers, writers, things like that. And it also comes down to the actress. Like, how is the actress playing this? And if she's playing it up as comedy, then it's going to come across as comedy. But, you know, you could potentially play anything as serious. But, you know, looking at this musical as a whole and how everything's going. If you're not into Jane Eyre, I don't necessarily know why you might be going to see this musical because we, <laughs> I think people might have a lack of attention with this. I mean, it's a two and a half hour show and there's just so much going on and you kind of need to have a good background. I'm sure, you know, anyone goes to any play that they want to, whether they have a background in it or not. But I think this person, Mrs. Fairfax, I think became someone for the layman who came in off the street, wanted to see a musical, chose Jane Eyre. Maybe they're a bit bored and we're only, I don't know, half an hour in. And so now we've got kind of a jokester character. Jane and Edward have a full conversation while he is laying on the ground, joking about what he has heard about Rochester, which was an interesting scene that he's on the ground, and that's when they decide to have a conversation, and of course goes into it. I mean, I'm sure the audience realizes that that is Edward Rochester. Of course, Jane doesn't, but the fact that he is... I don't know, being very high school about it, like, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard that he's a blah, 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 blah. And she's like, oh, I haven't met him. So Thornfield Hall was a bit crowded with people, I think perhaps too many ensemble. And it's just the house is moving between scenes a lot. And you have more people than you would expect. I mean, more than Robert and, and other people. It just seems like, wow, they've really hired extra staff to get this Thornfield Hall 
rolling. And I think the nice thing about Jane Eyre is the intimate quality of it and the anxiety around Jane Eyre is the fact that there aren't as many people. So you're able to, with a lack of people, develop relationships and have them have some sort of character attached to those relationships. And then also the fact that there aren't that many people or you only encounter them in the daylight makes you nervous for what's going on at night and that you know Jane can't find anyone to help her and things like that until the, the party comes. Edward pretty quickly recognizes the goodness in Jane, and Jane speaks and sings her feelings on him before the fire in the bed. Love. Love is like a virus. We're infected with. You're so naive. Wouldn't it be wonderful if life were just as you perceive? Women are inhuman, worthless, coarse and savage, on the average, never to be trusted, completely maladjusted. It's true, but if I had not loved a few, I might have been as good as you. She was my flame, my galaxy, I was her fool's delight. Put me in her spell and turned my rage to trust in just one night With appetites for pleasure We would search for buried treasure in the excess of temptation I thought it my salvation It's true But if I had thought things through I might have been as good as you She found me handsome my opera dancer and like a fool I believed it was true I held the world inside my hands a man fool in his prime when she left me for another pierced my heart a second time nothing lasts forever she said find the door yourself didn't want you think me still your flower I've treasured every hour, it's true But if I had loved you too I might have been as good as you I came upon her sometime later The years had not been very kind She had this child Adele Said she was mine as well Nothing lasts forever, Edward. Take good care and, oh yes, won't you, take our lovely daughter. For you see, dear, I don't want her. But I'm still your flower. I'll just bloom elsewhere. Tell her my soul is in heaven with God. Sir, I tell you this because I want you to know that I, with some luck, without shame, without blame, or the curse of my name, might have been as good as you.
What can I do now, my precious Lord? His dark love would be my best reward. I know I should not dare to go deeper in his madness, but it's like a field I must run through. No one's words will make me love him less. How much can I stand? I dare not guess. The secret voice that speaks to me tells me he's in danger. Looking to the dust for tenderness. Deep in my secret soul. I stand alone. The purpose of why I'm here is still unknown, and I can't help but sense the darkness in his mind. But I keep looking for his goodness, afraid of what I'll find. My heart moves through his unquiet sea. I pray a wave will come and carry me closer to his troubled tide, waters of his fury. But how can I swim this great divide? Deep in my secret soul, I cry his tears. I weather his angry voice. His life has infected every wound and every pore. I feel his mystery possess me, and I pray that mercy's hand will pass me. Deep in his secret soul, his past is the fire having a conversation between grace and jane where grace is actually helping jane get dressed so jane is i was almost going to say she's on stage the entire time but that is not true but that was a transitional scene where she needed to stay on stage the entire time and so she wakes up and grace comes in and suddenly you know grace has this job where she's also a dresser i guess that'd be a lady's maid which is not her job but for the purposes of moving the plot along and also having our actress not just have a night shift but also go into her dress it all it all worked out so it was actually a clever way to do that the only other way would have been to have an actual maid come in and help her dress but the point is for Jane and Grace to have a conversation since we know that Jane has most suspicion about her and of course Edward fuels that fire wow so Blanche when that party arrives she does not play around she bluntly says that Thornfield needs a wife 
Blanche is kinder to Adele in this adaptation, but it's still pretty painful watching Jane just all in black while the rest of the party in lively colors are dancing around her. And Blanche, apropos for her character, gets her own song, which I won't play here, but it certainly tells us about her beliefs and if you had a guess as to her socioeconomic status after her song, You Will Not Be in the Dark Any Longer. Jane and Edward have an intimate conversation once Mason arrives, and he seeks comfort from her and assurance that she wouldn't leave if everyone else left and slandered him, which, of course, we know from the OG Jane Eyre. She actually takes his arm, and he takes her hands twice. And this is, remember, I've, I've spoken of touching in Jane Eyre, especially touching hands and things like that. The fact that she took his arm first, I thought, was pretty monumental. I'm sure that I gasped while I was watching this adaptation. And he was even, he had to look down at the arm, as you sometimes do when someone touches you or grabs your hand. The theme of Brave Enough for Love returns, and we also have the Siren song. And now this song was used for the Tony performance, which was interesting, because it's not the song I would have necessarily chosen. I think I'm, I don't know, I I would have loved for the last song to be, you know, Brave Enough for Love, the actual, the full song at the end. It's a seven-minute song, and I think you could have done something to cut up her narration because, of course, she says, you know, dear audience, I married him and, and all that. But I feel like it's more uplifting of a song to use and so maybe they thought that the Tonys they couldn't perform a seven minute song but then I was re-watching Anything Goes and their performance their Tony performance and that is a seven minute song slash dance number so it would have been possible but anyways they went with Siren Song and Bertha gets in on the singing action and then later Mason sings on that theme as we watch him go to his sister and Siren Song ends act two damn the passion damn the skies damn the light that's in her eyes i know too well what it has led before she saves me but i can't be saved frees me but i'm still enslaved now i battle what i most adore oh let me sail away and make this vow that what my heart wants i Sirens call the sailors She calls me now God save him if he can be saved Free him if his soul's enslaved Clear the clouded refuge of his mind Quell his anger, calm his scorn Let his spirit be reborn Help him gather sight where he is blind For oh, I me sail away the ghosts of shame Stand another knock, my body dashed upon the rocky shore. The darkness that invades my soul, it sucks my blood, it takes control. Well, I will not endure it anymore. 
Damn the passion, damn the skies, damn the light that's in her eyes. I know well what it has meant before. She saves me, but I can't be saved. Frees me, but I'm still in space. Now I battle what I most adore. Oh, let me sail away. It's lost at sea, but I won't care. continue to have ensemble songs and they're still used as description and third person narration observing Jane since Jane doesn't know all so it's certainly for the audience I was fine with it I think with the Thornfield Hall song but as we progress and we've got this group of humans singing about things singing to us and I, I I felt like it was intrusive. It was too, but I think it's I think my discomfort with it was mostly because it just was not. It didn't feel like the OG Jane Eyre, and I think it's fine. Like we as audience members can see what's going on, and we're not as in the dark as Jane is. So even if Jane's in the dark, I. Th- think it would be fine that we're on the same page with her and that we don't need people telling us what's going on because we can kind of watch and things will be illuminated when it's time but just note that there are some more ensemble songs that are telling us what's going on edward actually asks for advice from jane and she has a pretty christian response telling him to speak to his maker we don't often see this happening as bluntly as it is here i think it is more nuanced and jane is jane eyre as a whole is not looked upon positively at that time period because of her stance and sort of the criticisms laid against Christianity. If you know, you're, you're reading between the lines and the different characters that we have that are showing the different extremes, but you know, to say it's anti-Christian obviously is, is short sighted, but for her to be this blunt and to sit down and, and tell him, you know, you need to basically pray, uh, in asking, advice that she's she's not the one to respond it's got to be his maker i thought was really interesting i don't know how many audience members are going to tie that with helen because they've had well number one we've we're now in act two so it's been a little while and many things have been happening many songs have been sung but number two that was i don't know how, how much attention did they pay to helen and how do they recognize how important she actually is in in Jane's development? So it was interesting. I wonder if people are at this point uncomfortable because what's this? Is this a Christian play? Are we going to be schooled on what we need to do here? Not sure. I found it amusing that Edward actually gives 
Jane Abropat once he mentions that he'll probably marry Blanche soon and leaves and you know she's saying well I'll have to leave too and then he's like yeah good and okay when would Edward Rochester ever do that but people laughed in the audience so I guess they enjoyed that the song about painting a portrait is powerful emotional and big I don't think I'd say that it is Jane's show-stopping number but it is a really important one to have. And obviously, we've got the themes of beauty coming in. We have the themes of socioeconomic status coming in. We see her conflict within herself about what to do with Edward. So I'll play that song here. What a fool I have been to wonder If he might have a care for me How insane the thought that you could be to him Dear in any way that a more absurd young girl has lived I doubt that you could say You, a favorite of Mr. Rochester Gifted with the power, your logic's fading by the hour And to no avail, Jane Poor blind puppy, had to go on dreaming Had to try to give your life some meaning Still you fail, Jane How dare you think there's a place in his heart for you? I'm painting my portrait, an absolute likeness, faithful to illustrate every fine line. I'm mastering detail, highlighting defects, making a permanent mirror to see all of the faults that lie hidden in me. I'm painting my portrait, it's plain and uneven, reminding me what I am. What I must be I'm leaving out nothing No matter how painful All of my flaws on display To be seen Now my painting is done I'll start another This one of her And when I close my eyes I clearly see her face Capture her grace and poise Fight back the tears And I'm painting her portrait An absolute likeness The loveliest face The most delicate skin A tribute to beauty Ingram, omit neither diamond ring nor golden rose. Make her a lady of rank, glistening satin. Oh, how she glows! Mix in your finest tints, paint her dramatically with all your sweetest hues. Sit here fanatically painting our portrait. This one will live all of her life as a governess 
just a lonely governess. This one will always be happy and marry a man who will carry her away. Should you fancy that he really loves you? Just compare the pictures to completely different mixtures. You should be ashamed, Jane. Why would he trade his silver for some unpolished metal? Why would he suffer for a slave when he could have a queen? Jane, it's foreseen, Jane. Blanche and Jane actually later share a song, and you see their differences in how they view the estate and what it means to them. So if only Edward were a peeping Tom, he could see... (laughs) He wouldn't need to be the traveler for the next scene, but he could see that Jane is obviously the right choice because for Blanche, it's all money, and, and Jane actually sees the beauty in the estate. So we do have the traveler, comes and it's rearranged for after Mason. So Mason is not a part of this now and it's in act two. Now my guess as to why they move this scene is because act one was getting a bit crowded and there was a lot going on. You were introducing characters and you had the party arrive and Mason, do you want to do that? Well, I was about to, the trolling scene basically right then, or do you wait? And We are also extending, I think, the conflict or the love triangle a little bit more to create drama. So in extending it into Act 2, now you have this scene and then you're you're finally able to get the Ingrams to leave. Because honestly, it went Traveler, Ingrams leave immediately, and then the proposal, bam, bam, bam. So it sped things along, but you also, I think, are dragging it out for drama's sake. and puny and spoiled and bland Oh, sister You have no principles, you have no taste Your education was truly a waste Don't be upset, girls, this has to be faced Sweet sister I see a man in your future, my dear Auspicious But his claims of title and wealth I fear are fictitious You marry the scoundrel and soon after that You bear him a child and then you get fat Lucky for you, he leads both of you flat Yeah. <laughs> 
And who might he be, Mother? I'm getting tired of this masquerade. Oh, sister, do you forgive me for this odd charade? Dear sister. The proposal song, I keep using this word, but it's also powerful. It shows the conflict within Edward. With these shows who have a complicated male lead that, you know, has some, obviously a protagonist, but has some antagonist qualities or is not 100% good, you know, has his conflicts, is a complicated three-dimensional character, You've got to have some of these powerful songs that we're seeing. And Edward has some really strong songs like Jekyll does, like, I should say, Dr. Jekyll, and like The Phantom does as well. So I'm I'm glad that that theme has stuck with some of these gothic musicals. Jane, you are to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysus O'Gall. At Bitternot Lodge, Connet, Ireland. Ireland? Well, I really must object. Jane, this is best. I don't agree, sir. Jane, when you're gone, I will miss our walks, our little talks, the look of sunlight on your face, soon to be a memory. Jane, when you're gone, I'll miss your voice, and I'll think of you. Out on the glen, you seem so like a fairy then. Such a distance, why so far, sir? Oh, does that perturb you? It's a long way. Well, from what, Jane? Why should that disturb you, Jane? We've been friends. It's getting late, sir. Jane, what is wrong? I must go in, sir. Jane, is that a tear that's in your eye? Yes, it is, and I cry because the pain, because the grief is slowly turning. To rage, I'm like a bird upon the reef who wishes she were never born into this cage. I know you think because I'm plain that I feel nothing inside. If I were rich, if I were beautiful, then I should think I would make it as hard for you to leave me as it is for me to leave you. I love Thornfield. I grieve to leave it. For here I have talked face to face with what I reverence, what I delight in, with an original of vigorous and expanded mind. But I see the necessity of departure, and it's like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? In the shape of your bride. Jane, there is a place for you And Jane, it is here with me To live in this house To stand as my wife What do you mean? Jane, you are my second self And Jane, don't you see the truth That you are the heart of my life What a blast She saw never to return The gypsy told her that my wealth Wasn't half of my first claim 
And blanching from bless her heart Took the bait and not my name I would not I could never have married Blanche Ingram Because my equal is here And my likeness Then why did you make me believe you loved her? To make you jealous? Why? Jane To make you as in love with me As I am in love with you Be my wife Say my name Edward Will you marry me, Jane Eyre? You mean more to me than life What's your answer? Tell me now Do you consent to be my wife? God forgive me, you are not getting away from me If I had a string under my ribs Not to you connecting our frames I'd be afraid that many a mile would sever the tie And I would take to bleeding inwardly Are you my saviour, are you my saint Protecting me now with communion and light Stand as my equal, be my reward Slay custom and code, with love as your sword Childish, slender creature My hope of heaven lies Inside your precious eyes I hear your cherished voice Across the moorland skies Will I not God and cherish you As long as I shall live? Will I not sanction you Across the moorland skies Your youth and spirit Tender nature Gentle presence Flies us up to heaven Across the Adele's speaking voice, and I guess it's taken me this long to mention it, is really annoying. And I don't know why the actress made that particular choice. And we know that as a profession, you are not necessarily the only one that is making a decision. You do have directors as well as potentially people around you, maybe producers. But Adele is a different child than Jane because I almost gave her the benefit of the doubt and said, well, maybe it's the same actress who's playing little Jane, so she wants to do something different now. I 
can't. Uh, the only way to describe it would be to describe the voice as a French moaning myrtle from Harry Potter. Again, I just don't know. Luckily, she's not on stage very often. The Sirens theme returns after the revelation, the Bertha revelation, and Jane actually vacillates with what she should do. So I thought that that was a great way to bring that back because the Sirens at the end of Act 1 is like, what should I do? There are these things pulling at me. Jane is at that same place again. What should I do? There are these things pulling at me. What can I do? I feel his love. Would I be judged by God above if I were to stay here by his side? Surely there would be no blame if I do not take his name. I'll have his heart, but I'll not be his bride. And we could sail away, get lost at sea, where we could lose ourselves, where we are blind and free. I pray there was a reason for my birth. Is this what you would have me do? Break my sacred vow to you? Destroy the laws of heaven here on earth? What can I do? Jane, I feel his love. Would I be judged no by God above? If I am not there to hear his call. Curse the passion, don't you see If I cannot take his name, I cannot take anything Again, Jane, heavier with the Christianity, saying that they should both seek God and pray for heaven, and hopefully they'll meet again. And I feel like there should be maybe some more nuance. I don't know. I think part of the reason why it it seems to stick out to me is that it wasn't something that was consistent all the way through. It was just something that has popped up in certain areas, and so... I guess they decided to make it heavy in those two, the two times or so that we see, we'll we'll see it again, rather than sprinkle it throughout, and then it just becomes very apparent of, of what's going on. In his next song, Without Jane, Edward really shows and sings his agony. So you would leave me in ruin and despair My hope is quenched, my life is lost, late waste beyond repair I was wrong when I deceived you, but there was no other way Your character won't let you live, the lie mine must obey And I don't mean to claim that honor has been served But why must I have eyes to see on a bed? Why must 
I take one more breath Let lightning strike That's not the worst Know that you've shattered my soul I die accursed So farewell, good angel Another day is done I wrapped my life around you And for a time two fused as one And God shall strike me down If you are truly gone But why must I have eyes to see on a bed? Why must I take one more breath Let lightning strike, that's not the worst I'd rather burn in hell Damning my soul to well Lost in my pain Than to live here on earth Without my Jane I didn't mention this earlier. I believe it was in the review, but I couldn't actually see it on the bootleg that I was watching until the fire. But there are screen effects in the show, and I think th- that might have been one of the maybe the higher price points is what they were doing here. But of course, you need to show fire, right? And we're not going to have a Rebecca debacle. Rebecca the musical, you should look up some of the crazy stuff that went on there, but uh, because they want to burn the staircase on stage. So how are you going to burn things on stage? And, and here they're, they're using some screen effects. And I don't know. I feel like they probably used it throughout the show. It's just where the camera was. Couldn't see it as much. The ensemble appears again, of course, and speaks as Jane, which is an interesting choice since Jane already speaks, obviously, to the gentle audience. So the ensemble has been a narrator has been a third-person omniscient narrator, and now has become Jane Eyre. I didn't care for that because I I just think now there are too many people on the stage at this point in time. And I think that they did restage this more recently than 2001 and actually removed some people. So I think it's probably less crowded now if you were to see an adaptation in 2022. But... Why do I need someone else to speak as a character that's, you know, I can see on the stage? So that was interesting. They somehow managed to merge the return to Gateshead with Sinjin, who is from a local parish. I know his sisters are not with him. Little Jane and Big Jane are both in the scene with the with, with Aunt Reed, which I thought was actually quite interesting because we do know that on her deathbed, she's thinking about Jane, little Jane, and even though Big Jane is there, she's saying things about little Jane that, oh, she was a terror, da-da-da-da-da. So it's interesting to have them on either side, and the actress actually looks back and forth between them. Jane sings Helen's song of forgiveness, which is apropos, but again, I do wonder how many of the audience members recognize that this is a callback to Helen. And yes, you have a playbill, so if you're savvy enough, you can think, oh, this sounds familiar, and flip back to when it had come about the first time. But are they connecting that that 
song is significant not only for Jane's growth, who said she, who swore she was not going to forgive Mrs. Reed, and then also connecting it to who Helen is. I don't know that they necessarily are. I love it because I think artistically they're doing a great job to connect it. But I, I wonder if this Broadway show is new. What would you even say? This new viewer friendly? If you hadn't read Jane Eyre. So Jane stays and becomes close with Sinjin, but states that she will give her heart to God, not Sinjin Rivers. So again, you know, maybe a bit heavy handed. And we know it's just, I, I think I expected some more nuance because that is certainly what we see in the OG. Uh, obviously, no, she's not going to marry Sinjin. And yes, she would do missionary work, but she is very blunt about what that actually means. The fact that her return to Gateshead comes at the end, and also the emerging Sinjin Rivers reminds me of the radio play, which of course has a plot connection to the Joan Fontaine and Orson Welles adaptation. I was thinking that she was not going to return to Gateshead, and when she's a child and says, I swear I will never forgive Aunt Reed, and she can, like, die without my forgiveness. I thought, oh my gosh, are you going to leave her character like that? But then they were able to bring that back, and once she was going to Gateshead, I again wondered, oh, are you going to neglect Sinjin? But they brought that as well. So we, I guess, create a, a secondary love triangle, and yeah, they become friends. So they, they stick around, they spend some time together, and you wonder if something's going to develop, but you can clearly tell that Jane is still hung up on Edward, so that all works out. And then, yeah, Sinjin is just like, we just leave him at one point. In the light of the virgin evening, in the veil of a midnight bloom, God has seen I'm at last rewarded, he has sent me you. And I hear his divine commandments, and I sail his celestial sea. In the harmony of the heavens, he's proclaimed to me. Jane, you must be a missionary wife. Jane, you will have a visionary life. The rock of ages is yours to lean on. Jane, you will not to love Jane, show your faith in the heavens above for now I claim you in holy marriage Marry me, Jane Eyre Let God in time show us the worth of our love If it were God's will I should marry you I could vow to do it here and now Then pray, pray for his guidance He will show you the way what can I do now, my precious Lord? Would this union be my best reward? Is this why I've landed here, frozen on his doorstep? Is this part of your eternal plan? Deep in my Light my way 
What is it? What do you hear? Edward? Edward! Where are you? Wait for me! Mrs. Fairfax is still around, which doesn't happen in the OG, but hey, she is able to sing a song and give us some plot development and exposition about what happened to Bertha. And she, which is really interesting, she uses the traveler theme in order to talk about what happened to Bertha. Now, I don't know orchestral or writer or... Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just say those intent, but to connect those two, I think you're saying something socially because Bertha is always the odd man out, anyways. Ooh, I can't remember if we talked about her origin or not in this musical, but if we maybe we did, but also, yeah, she's this crazy woman in the attic. We have some sort of judgment against the travelers so yeah let's let's merge them into two people groups or really just one people group they're the other that's the best way to say it and so yeah we connect it with that theme which is very interesting shockingly jane gets her inheritance from mrs reed so i guess that maybe shows reconciliation of their relationship there are uh, her cousins are not there by the way when she goes back and visits and it also shows that we wanted to get rid of some of the complication of her uncle in uh, Madeira and all of that stuff so we're able to cut out a lot of stuff by Mrs. Reed giving her the inheritance and now she's she actually is a woman of means because normally she divides it three ways or four ways I suppose and she only has 5,000 but now she's got 20,000 pounds from Mrs. Reed so yeah she can absolutely take care of herself and doesn't need to rely on Edward so they're really coming in as equals and then the last song of course we finally have the full Brave Enough for Love which if you are a... (laughs) If you're a savvy listener, dear reader, then you will see a ring composition and almost a hint as to what this final episode was going to be because at the end of episode one, I actually played a clip from that music. And so, yeah, I can end it with that full song right here. Sir, I have come back to you Ready to stand here by your side As you see fit As your friend or as your bride
You always were, you know. <laughs> I see the wickedness is still within you. <laughs> but is it really you, Jane? Now you'll come back to me. I am. And you're not dead in some ditch or an outcast among strangers. No, sir. I am an independent woman now. An independent woman? My aunt has died and left me her fortune. Then you possess more wealth than I. What could I possibly offer you? I am no better than the old chestnut Struck down by lightning, its life cleft in two For why should you marry a blind man, a cripple? Tell me, Jim, what right do I have to you? I prayed in the name of God, don't let Jane suffer, don't let her die. For three days in my despair, I cried to heaven, where is Jane Hell? Then from my lips came a voice, came a name, I cried Jane from the depths, I called out, I cried a Jane. And I don't know what happened, but I thought I had you. Did you speak these words out loud? I did. If anyone was listening, he would have thought me mad, I called with such frantic energy. And this was last Monday evening, just after sunset? Yes, but what follows is the strangest point. Where the voice came from, I cannot tell. But I know whose voice it was. And the voice replied... Edward, where are you? Wait for me. Yes. Yes, but how could you know that? The secrets of your heart are like the secrets of the house. They have finally been revealed. There is no more to hide. I have looked death in the face, and though a part of me has died, I will never lose faith, I will never lose heart, for you have restored my trust, and I know you're afraid, I'm as scared as you are, but willing to be brave, brave enough for love. The purifying flame has washed us clean of all our fears. It, it was, was a miracle, miracle of God. God. I will never lose faith. I will never lose heart. For you have restored my trust. And I know you're afraid. I'm as scared as you are. But willing to be brave. I married him. No woman was ever nearer to her mate than I am. Ever more absolutely bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. 
The secret of the flame is that there is no more to hide. It cures our blindness and our pride, and we'll never lose faith. We will never lose heart. You'll have restored my trust, and I know you're afraid I must stand as you are. But when you to be brave, brave enough for love. Edward continued blind the first two years of our marriage. Then, slowly, the sight in one eye began to return to him. And when our firstborn was placed into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were, large, brilliant, and black. On this occasion, we acknowledged with full hearts that God had tempered judgment with mercy. I will never lose faith. I will never lose heart. For you have restored my trust. And I know you're afraid. I'm as scared as you are. But willing to be brave, I will never lose heart. For you have restored my trust, and I know you're afraid. I'm as scared as you are. But willing to be brave, I will never lose faith. I will never lose heart. enjoyed the musical. I will say I was concerned. I had heard about the Jane Eyre musical years ago, definitely not in 2001. And 2001 was a bit early for me making my Broadway trips. I think the first one was probably 2004, maybe 2005, something like that. So I missed it. But you kind of get nervous. Number one, you just love something so much. Is it going to transition well to a musical? Or translate well is probably the better word. And number two, people already have issues, as I've already spoken. The length of Jane Eyre, with Edward, with, you know, maybe if they find things boring. How are you going to do this, Anisha? Are you going to keep people engaged? This 100% steps on the gas, gas to the floor of the car to the end. And they're able to merge scenes to transition. They cut out many things. I am glad that they keep descriptions. So sometimes I like the ensemble, maybe just that one time, and sometimes I do not. But at least they have it because I think we did need a description of Thornfield Hall, of the landscape. We have some songs where 
you know, the two women are singing about Thornfield Hall and, and the gardens around them and everything. So I'm glad that they kept that. And then shifting some things around to create drama, love triangles, and also speed it along. So moving that traveler scene really changed things schematically, I think, if you look at it, but also it worked for its purposes. And the music, though, that that was what I first listened to because soundtracks are easy to find, obviously, and you can buy them, you can stream them. And I listened to it and immediately, immediately I thought, oh, wow, actually, this is really good. Like, I'm hearing the themes of Jane Eyre in song number one. And Marla is a great lead actress. James Barber has a great voice for what he is given. And I love how themes are repeated to connect things, and which again, I think you need to be in the know in order to understand that. But overall, I, I would say that it is, I, listen to the music to see if you're interested. And maybe, yeah, maybe if there's a show, go and see it. I personally am unsure if you can fully appreciate it if you haven't read Jane Eyre. They do a good job, I think, for new viewers to, using that ensemble again, to explain what's happening. But they're just connections. And, you know, I clearly this podcast series has become Helen Burns' love fest. But if you don't understand the importance of Helen Burns, you're going to lose some of those, I think, connections. But... I did enjoy it. I, I think that it is well done. I understand why it closed. Just some some shows don't catch on very well, and I think that is just going to be one of them. But I, I hope to one day actually see it. Well, I think for the last time, I'm going to go through my rubric. I've talked about some of this stuff, but we'll we'll see officially what I think about this. So... Did it have the spirit of it, you know? Uh, yeah, I think 100%. We saw these themes. And the beauty of musical theater is that we not only have people speaking on the themes, but singing on them as well, and we have music behind it. So we have a three-pronged attack, and there were wonderful themes that came through, like socioeconomic status, beauty, freedom, to a certain extent, like moral stance and, and what you're doing. Yeah, so the themes come through. Gothic feel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got Bertha and the darkness of the house. That that first time that Mrs. Fairfax is leading Jane around in a darkened house and the actresses are just like walking in a circle up staircases and stuff and you're getting lost. And she's like, don't go in this room. That's pretty creepy. So yeah, we got it. As well as, again, we have the benefit of musicality to back up that gothic feel. Okay, is Jane relatable? I would say so. I think there's definitely an intimacy between me as an audience member and Jane. I love that she addresses us. Love that she calls us dear audience. Don't love when there are other people speaking for her. I would have loved more of her time solo, like describing things, but we get to see it in other avenues, like maybe writing or painting, and she's talking to us. But yeah, I really like Jane. I like how Marla chose to be Jane as well. What is her character? Her moral aptitude, reverence, faithfulness, awareness of responsibility, veracity, and goodness. I think absolutely we see all of those. We see, again, that, that Christianity really poke through. I, I wouldn't even say it kind of punches through in certain ways. And then just her 
behavior towards characters. Uh, I really feel like the Jane from the book comes to the Jane on stage. Yeah, she just seems so kind and loving. And I've spoken on my own show, Backroll to Oracle, about... uh, Seeing stage productions feels very different for me because, and and it it affects me more deeply because I feel like there's an intimacy there. Like I'm actually with these people. When you're seeing a movie on a screen, you're so, you're disconnected from those people who had done that at some point in time. But when you're sitting in an audience and there's nothing really between you and that stage, there's something really powerful in that and seeing Jane there and, and her behavior and how she was interacting, taking Rochester's arm, it, yeah, it was really affecting, even though I was just watching a bootleg. Her childhood scenes, very quick. Obviously, we get to see what her upbringing is like very briefly at Gateshead, which I, I didn't talk about, but yeah, they, they do it. We, we get to see John. But Helen, Helen is there. Helen's the important one. Helen gets a song, which is great. So I'm glad that they did highlight Helen and we get to see what impact Helen had on her. However, I don't know how many people have that connection with the music and what Helen was saying and how Jane has changed. But hopefully, hopefully they did. Her relationships with those around her, not the strongest. Adele especially is super weak. Obviously, you know that Adele annoyed me in this particular adaptation, so maybe she also annoyed Jane. But yeah, it's just really a governess-pupil relationship. There's nothing too much there, which is unfortunate. I think she Jane does give a talking to to Mr. Rochester for his outbursts at her, but that's that's about it. Fairfax and Jane, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily intimates. They have some conversations, but they do more seem like colleagues. I mean, she's not someone that... She's not a confidant. And then... Yeah, Mrs. Reed we get to see again, so there's that redemption of the relationship. We don't, unfortunately, get to see the relationships between her and and the Rivers sisters, which, you know, it just doesn't exist. And then I would say her relationship with Sinjin is a change, but it's positive. Like, they actually seem to become friends, and he doesn't seem as severe as he does in the OG. The relationship between Jane and Edward... <laughs> Even though we start off on an awkward foot, having a conversation on the ground. Yeah, I I would say that this is developed well. And what's nice about musical theater is that you do have to show and tell us. So we are seeing the development of their feelings and we're hearing the development of their feelings. We're also seeing and hearing the conflict between the two of them Let me rephrase. We're also seeing and hearing the conflict within each of them about the situation. Obviously, we know Jane is like, oh, is Edward going to, you know, Edward's got Blanche. Am I going to stay here with him or not? And Edward's got, well, I've got Bertha in the attic. And then I have Jane. What should I do? So you both see and hear that, which is great. And I think, yeah, the love is believable. You have a short time to fall in love with these people. Two and a half hour play, but, or musical, but you are only on stage with them maybe, I don't know, hour and a half or so, maybe a bit longer. But yeah, you've got a quick you got to get them together and, and have that believable. The conflict that tears them apart, obviously, is Bertha. Yes, it's believable. Yes, we have songs to back that up, which is great. And then 
Can this stand alone or must you have read it? As I've said, yeah, it can stand alone. They do a good job or at least attempt to make it understandable for those who have not read Jane Eyre. But I think in order to get some of the nuances between and connections between uh, the music as well as Jane's character change, then you should read the OG Jane Eyre in order to to fully appreciate this. Does it have the spirit of Jane or the law of Jane? It definitely has the spirit of Jane. I hesitate to say it has the law, if only because of these transitional scenes and, you know, blending Lowood with Gateshead, blending Sinjin with Gateshead, and then moving the Traveler scene. So... It's real close to the law, but not fully. I can't do it. But I'm happy that I found an adaptation, and I'm happy that I liked it because that would be such a bummer for a musical theater fan like myself to not like the merging of two of my loves, Jane Eyre and Broadway. So I hope to one day see it. That would be amazing. Okay, so the final thing is, of course, From the Airways. So, unfortunately, people listened to Dear Reader Episode 9, Neckbiters and Bodice Rippers, even though I told you not to. So I do have three comments from that particular episode. First is from David Ace Gutierrez. He says, Stella swings and knocks it out of the park. Well, thank you very much, but also, I told you not to listen to it. Next, from Brian Linton, says, My only foray into the classic horror genre mashup, I don't know if it has a formal name, has been Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yes, I've also read that, Brian. I'm glad that Jane has her chance to hunt things that go bump in the night, and I agree that she's a good choice for such a treatment, given her gothic roots. As far as the second half of the episode goes, I have to congratulate... <laughs> I have to congratulate you on your heroic effort. Your unedited asides and color commentary are what really made it work. I'll only add that if it was Twitter that goaded you into doing that dramatic reading, that it truly is the dark and evil social media platform that rumors speak of. Thanks for another excellent episode. Well, first of all, Brian, thank you. Second of all, I told you not to listen to that episode. Why did you do it? Third of all, goading, it might be a bit too strong. It was more of a democratic situation. And also, you know, I put myself there, but I thought people would only choose one to two passages, maybe half at most, but the fact that most people chose all the passages, that says something. Also, because I think, you know, even though I have followers, most of them are strangers, and also I think, which I'll remember to come back to something, but I think probably it's just a lot of my friends that wanted me to hear erotica. So you can probably just blame them rather than Twitter. But I'll also say that for a few weeks afterwards, I was getting more and more followers. And I don't know who these people are, but I'm thinking it's because of that erotica episode. And so I hope they don't think it's going to be a repeat appearance. And then finally from Siskoid, take a shot. But yeah, while I'm not a reader of erotica, every time I come across it, it seems to have the same basic tropes, including the S&M that apparently titillates the wine moms enough to make the horrid Fifty Shades a success. Without kink shaming, I have a hard time believing so many people are into that stuff in their own bedrooms, which is perhaps why it has a lurid allure. Never mind every lead in an erotica novel. Yes, that is certainly not my cup of tea. 
I don't think it should be Jane's cup of tea either. I believe that it could be, given his character, something that Edward might do. Though, if you think that he's doing that in the bedroom, you'd wonder, like, oh, is he abusive out of it? But there's not necessarily a one-to-one connection. But I don't think my dear Jane would be up for that kind of stuff. Siskoid, thank you so much. But also, I told you not to listen to that episode. Why did you do it? Okay, well, thank you everyone who wrote in. Thank you for everyone, everyone who has written in across this limited series. And I'm just appreciative, so appreciative that you, any of you who have downloaded any of these episodes, have downloaded and listened. It was a labor of love, which is a Broadway shout out to something. See if you can catch it. And... I know that it was a a niche subject matter, and I went into it knowing that I wasn't going to get a lot of listeners, but I loved doing it. I loved deep diving into Jane Eyre and looking at her various adaptations, and just thank you for being on the ride with me. So I do want to say that I have been picked up for a second season from or on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I know what I want to do. It's going to be a play. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I hope that when I return that you'll be with me. Again, thank you so much. And as I leave you, if you ever come across a situation and you're wondering what you should do, just think to yourself, WWJED, what would Jane Eyre do? If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it. Go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to batgirl2oracle at gmail.com, don't question it, and follow at batgirl2oracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book. (laughs) 